0: Welcome to today's episode of the Face by Alex Pike podcast. I'm interviewing Professor Mark Ashton, an Australian based plastic surgeon, and we talk all things patient safety. Hope you enjoy. Professor Mark Ashton, welcome to the Alex Pike podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are a specialised plastic surgeon and your philosophy is surgery plus artistry. Can you tell me about that?
1: Plastic surgery is one of those unique disciplines where you need to, one, be able to do the operation, but unlike other operations where it's more of a technicality of doing it the same each and every time, in plastic surgery, you need to modify and adapt to what you're doing to suit the individual or particular patient and the problem or the situation that they're facing that you need to correct. So for example, you might need to do an appendicectomy in a patient for appendicitis and the operation for that, whilst it's transformed in terms of laparoscopic surgery and things, the surgical technique by and large has remained largely the same mm-hmm. for about a hundred years. Whereas, say, someone presenting for a breast reduction, making their breasts smaller or lighter, the techniques have changed, but also you can't apply the same technique to each and every problem, to each and every patient or to each and every breast. And if we were to pick out one thing that went wrong, for example, in the Cosmetic Institute, which is up in Sydney, and you heard about those women having breast augmentation surgery and it all going horribly wrong, because they just did exactly that. They applied the same technique, each and every time, irrespective of whether that person had lost weight or had been breastfeeding in the past, had large breasts or small breasts or totic breasts or congenitally um, different breasts, they got the same operation. And not surprisingly, it worked in some people and not in others. And so the, the key point about plastic surgery and getting good at plastic surgery is recognizing that you need to treat each and every patient differently. You need to listen to what they're trying to achieve and use your skills and modify and change them to individualise the surgery you're performing.
0: Let's talk about qualifications because any doctor with a basic medical degree can in fact call themselves a surgeon. So there is a lot of misleading information in terms of advertising and I think as a consumer people are quite confused on the difference and I notice this particularly in a clinical setting where a patient may ask me or tell me, oh, I've booked in to have surgery, and if I ask who we've, you know, it's not always with a plastic surgeon. So can you talk about, you know, what is exactly the difference in qualification from a plastic surgeon and a cosmetic surgeon?
1: So the fundamental difference between those two groups of practitioners is training. One is trained to a set standard, which we call the Australian Medical Council. So the Australian Australian Medical Council, which we'll just quickly talk about that. That's the regulatory body that sets the standard for every surgical training program in Australia. So it doesn't matter if you're a heart surgeon, a neurosurgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, a vascular surgeon, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, an obstetrician, gynaecologist. You have to pass a series of set exams that are determined and regulated to a set benchmark by the Australian Medical Council. So that the training is predetermined to a set level with an exit examination and continuing professional development, continuing education to a set standard. Plastic surgery is exactly part of that group. So a plastic surgeon, a cardiothoracic surgeon and a vascular surgeon all do the same basic training. Cosmetic surgery requires none of that and you can currently, now hopefully that law is going to change in the next couple of months mm-hmm. and Mark Butler is to be particularly commended for seeing that through. But right now, as we currently stand, you can pass your basic medical degree on Friday and on Monday morning, set your plaque up outside your door, calling yourself a cosmetic surgeon with no additional training. Now, the reason why that's important is because in our basic medical degrees, they've changed. We don't even study anatomy in our basic medical degrees now. We don't study surgical technique in our basic medical degrees now. And so the person coming out, being able to call themselves a doctor with the so-called MBBS, is nothing like the doctor of 30 years ago or 40 years ago, where a lot of these conceptions sort of originated. So. Even if you said, I would like to go on to be a specialist general practitioner, I Mm -hmm. want to be a specialist GP, you come out of um, hospital training, out of university training with your basic medical degree, you can't be a GP. You have to go and do additional training. What that underpins is that the basic medical degree does in no way prepare you for any surgical practice at all. And so the biggest problem we have in the current model and what is one of the proposals being put forward at the moment is there is no requirement for people to do the additional training to the standard of every other surgical discipline. Now, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Why is it that a woman or a man considering cosmetic surgery should be expected to accept a person who for some reason doesn't have to do the hard yards that a vascular surgeon does or an orthopaedic surgeon does. I think that is incredibly disingenuous to mm-hmm. that, that particular person. And we know from the experience it's incredibly risky. We know there's lots of statistics that show that people who have done a plastic surgery training program, as the people who haven't done that six years of additional training, end up with higher complication rates, Higher incidence of malposition of implants mm-hmm. as compared to plastic surgeons and higher reoperation rates. The other problem, which is even more fundamental, is that being a plastic surgeon and being a surgeon is much more than just learning a recipe book of particular operations. And as we talked about before, plastic surgery is about taking your surgical skill set yeah. and modifying it to the particular patient. Now, part of that is saying to a patient, actually, I don't think you need surgery at all. So not operating is actually a very real treatment option for every patient that walks through the door.
0: Absolutely. And the, and
1: the reason why that option is given to a patient or not depends upon the ethical and the moral construct around which that particular practitioner is operating. And in plastic surgery, part of our final examination, part of our final training is all about ethics and morals. Mm-hmm. And where we again, let's pick up the cosmetic institute in Sydney, where that went wrong, was because everyone was offered an operation, irrespective of whether it was the right operation for them or not.
0: Yeah, it was cosmetic institute. Yeah, that's the that's the one. Yeah, with the class action.
1: With the class action. Yes. So it it's was... the difference between a cosmetic surgeon and a plastic surgeon comes back to training. Mm-hmm. Me, for example, so I went into medical school in 1982 and I came out as a plastic surgeon in 1998. So it it takes a while. and, And part of that is not just learning how to do the operations, but it's about how to manage complication, how to manage patient expectation and how to, as we talked about before, finessing or nuancing your surgical technique for that particular patient.
0: Can I ask you about that educational process? there does need to be you do need to be chosen for that program though you apply for the program after yeah. completing your medical degree
1: correct so yeah. so in plastic surgery just like every other surgery vascular no, surgery and so forth you come out of medical school and you need to do two or three years of basic hospital training and they call that surgery training in general. So that might be an orthopedic surgery, general surgery, vascular surgery, neurosurgery, intensive care. Um, and what that shows you is how to talk to patients, how to relate to patients, how to manage complications, how to manage hematomas, how to manage people are seriously ill and bleeding and so forth. And from that, you apply to the program and plastic surgery is just one of the multiple programs that you can apply for. It's competitive and we select somewhere between 25 and 30 people around Australia per year. Mm-hmm. And there are specific provisions for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island- Islanders. There's specific um, prerequisites for rurality or regionality Mm -hmm. so people we we talked about before both of us coming from country victoria new south wales um, that we want to as best we can provide a holistic service to the whole of australia sure not just people in melbourne sydney brisbane adelaide we want to make sure that people in dubbo Mm -hmm. or Wagga Wagga, or darwin can also have access to plastic surgical care
0: so what is a patient or a consumer looking for as proof in simplistic terms, of a plastic surgeon as opposed to a cosmetic surgeon?
1: So they need to look at the letters at the back. And if patients are finding that that's confusing, the answer to that is, of course, it's confusing. The people who haven't done the hard yards are trying to make it deliberately confusing. Of course. So they want to mirror as closely as they can the guys have actually done the work. It mirror the people, the girls and the, and the young lads who've been working hard in hospitals training. So the best way to look for that is they need to be what's called a Fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And that's just abbreviated to F-R-A-C-S. FRACS. FRACS. You can also ring the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons or look on their website, the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons. And that has a search tool. And from that, you can type in your prospective surgeon and see if they actually are a plastic surgeon. Have they actually done the 16 or 17 years that's required to become a plastic surgeon rather than just a weekend course?
0: I have been caring for patients for many years in my own practice, 13 this year. I uh, once had a patient who had been attending the clinic for maybe two or three years. And, you know, I felt we had good rapport. She had had, you know, four monthly treatments of Botox, for example, and then we moved on and we had done some mid-face fillers. She was looking towards around sort of mid to late 40s in age and one day she returned to my clinic and said, I have had a neck lift Um, and, of course, I was quite surprised because I thought that would be something she may have mentioned you know, to me, as someone that was treating her in a non-surgical way. And the outcome of that was she had proceeded to go to a cosmetic surgeon for what was called a neck lift and it was simply a thread from ear to ear underneath, which she paid, you know, $12,000 for. And, of course, it just, with gravity, just fell straight back down. And she was very, very upset. And she really didn't have sort of anywhere to turn. Is this a common theme?
1: It absolutely is. And part of the problem there, I think, is about the consent process at the start. Mm -hmm. It's about the surgical technique, which are almost invariably performed, which may or may not be a cutting edge. And then the follow-up care is almost invariably substandard or is not to the standard that as surgeons we would be expecting of our fellow colleagues so before that patient is offered surgical care or a particular operation it's important that you fully inform that patient of all the various options and associate with those options the relative risk so that for example we know facial operations have a risk of nerve damage of course they have a risk of skin death And they also have a risk that if it's performed incorrectly of asymmetry or the result, which can look slightly abnormal or weird or peculiar. It's important that the patient who's about to consider an operation is made aware of all of those, absolutely. Mm. And part of the problem we find is that when patients come to see us after something's gone wrong, the most common thing they say is, if only I'd known, if only I'd been told, Now the problem we have, and this is one of the things that I've been going on for such a long time, is that it's up to the regulator to make it simple for the patient to work out how to navigate Mm -hmm. through the system. Most of the patients are on the internet. Most of the patients are trying to do the right research. They're finding it incredibly confusing. And unfortunately the current rules as they stand don't mandate that, for example, The most recent recommendation from our regulator, the Australian Health Practitioner Registry Agency, or APRA, have in their latest series of recommendations have decided for reasons that I don't understand, that it's not important for a practitioner who's about to perform cosmetic surgery to have undertaken surgical training to the AMC standard. That is, they are not insisting that a person about to perform cosmetic surgery has done the same amount of training that someone who is about to do general surgery or breast surgery or knee surgery. I don't understand why not. um... Surely surgery is surgery. We know that there's no such thing as risk-free surgery. And as I see all too often, when things go wrong, almost invariably the so-called cosmetic surgeon is unable to fix the problem. And they end up on our doorstep, having been fleeced, as you talked about. Fleeced. Multiple, multiple thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. without any reserves, with deformity, with scar tissue. And in many cases, that problem, that deformity, that lifelong scar could have been avoided completely or certainly could have been managed in a way that was minimized had the particular practitioner done appropriate and adequate surgical training. And as the College of Surgeons and as a plastic surgeon, I would say that's the same surgical training as every other form of surgery.
0: Mm. I feel like, you know, in my experience with having a non-surgical practice that I get asked a lot of questions. And of course, being a registered nurse, I have in no way I'm able to refer um, however conversations occur. And I often tell patients that they have an ethical obligation to themselves to see A minimum of two surgeons and Mm. then that opens the conversation for me and my patient on what a plastic surgeon is and what a cosmetic surgeon is Mm. because I started my career in plastic surgery nursing working for a plastic surgeon so in fact I know um, but so many patients don't know and often what happens is from there they do go off and they receive a referral from their GP and they Mm. see two sometimes patients um, see three To get a really good idea of the process and also the relationship that they will have, which is usually a 12-month relationship with their plastic surgeon, what would be your advice for a patient seeking surgery?
1: No, you're absolutely on the money. That's exactly what we would advocate. So we would say that if you can see a minimum of two, but preferably three people, and there's two reasons for doing that. One is that even if they're saying exactly the same thing as what the first guy or woman said, um, they're saying it in often a slightly different way. So they're conveying that, we we talked to before, that all important conversation about risk and complication and what you do when things go wrong. So even if you're speaking to a female or a male plastic surgeon, seeing another plastic surgeon or another surgeon in that particular area for any surgery, hip surgery, knee surgery, doesn't really matter, it's really important because you get a perspective. You get an understanding about the operation, the process, as you talked about. But more importantly, you get an understanding about, okay, if things go wrong, how are they are going to be managed? What's going on? The other thing which is critically important, which you alluded to before, it's really important that you have a relationship with your surgeon. It's really important that you have a rapport and you get on well. And the reason why that's important is it's really easy when everything goes Swimmingly, it's all going smoothly. But if things go wrong, that's when you really need to be able to be in a situation where you can openly talk to your surgeon and say, Look, this isn't what I expected, or is this normal? Is this what usually occurs? And know that you've got an understanding of that particular individual, of how they're going to respond, how they're going to behave, and know that you're in the right hands to have your problem or your complication or your less than optimal result resolved in a timely manner by someone who actually knows what they're doing. And all too often what we find is when people go to the wrong person or go to the wrong surgeon and things go wrong, they find that particular element of their post-op care completely falls away and they're left alone, ashamed, embarrassed, poor, Mm -hmm. and not really sure where to go to get it all fixed.
0: And I feel too the problem also could be their partner or husband or wife may not have really been encouraging of this procedure in the first place. Then they have the added pressure of, you know, that home, I told you so, you know, yeah. like it, it can be an awful situation.
1: And interestingly, the, the thing we often find is that the person who is not properly trained, who hasn't trained to the full plastic surgery training credentials, is charging the same or on many occasions even more than the fully trained surgical equivalent. So going to a cosmetic surgery doesn't mean you necessarily get it cheaper and so they have come home, things have gone wrong, it can't be fixed, it's cost them a lot of money. Their spouse is saying, I told you so, this is costing an enormous amount of money and even if they can find somewhere to fix it for them, it's going to cost them significantly more money to have it fixed and they could have had the whole thing performed properly for far less money in the first place. So Underpinning that conversation is do your homework. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you know who is performing the surgery and make sure that that person is properly trained and is actually a surgeon. Now, hopefully Mark Butler and his reforms will come through, making it impossible for anyone to call themselves a surgeon unless they've done surgical training. In the short term, it's fundamentally important. You must check that the person who's about to operate upon you is either a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons or has the letters F-R-A-C-S
0: after their name. Speaking of training and education and ultimately experience, starting my career as a nurse in the early 2000s, I was registered Mm. and worked firstly in a nursing home. Then I moved to a private hospital where I did urology and general surgery then moving to melbourne i was um, employed at cabrini hospital on the plastic surgery ward Mm. so i did three solid years of actual nursing before um, getting a job and being trained by the drug companies for anti-wrinkle injections Mm. fillers etc so in terms of the rising popularity of non-surgical and Mm. surgical treatments uh, there are a lot of young women studying nursing purely for to become a cosmetic mm-hmm. nurse, which isn't even a term. Yeah. Cosmetic nurses, it's not a term. Mm-hmm. You are a registered nurse. Yeah. What are your thoughts on hospital training and, and being in a medical setting before having the responsibility of treating patients for non-surgical treatments?
1: So... Like you, I think it's fundamentally important, and I'll say why. The reason for that is because working in a hospital setting makes you absolutely aware of what can go wrong. We are seeing the wave of cosmetic non-surgical injections, and what started as a small little ripple has now a massive tsunami. It is a massive industry, and there's a lot of money at play, and as an example one of the uh, representatives was here in our rooms today talking about training and we had this conversation a lot of it is done by modules now um, which there's not even an exam at the end of it it's not even a requirement to have hands-on tuition and participation that you and me would have done we were talking about it before 10 15 years ago
0: it's a long time
1: um, having a cosmetic surgical injection is not risk-free. People regularly go blind. And yet in the conversations that we were having this morning, for example, there was no mention of blindness. There was no mention of um, people losing tissue, losing the tip of their nose, losing their upper lip, losing their eyelid or their forehead. As a result of someone inadvertently, not knowingly and not deliberately putting the hyaluronic acid filler into the artery and it can be at a distance well away from where the complication arises. It's well reported, for example, that people having fillers inserted into their lips um, can go blind. It's uh, someone that we were reporting on last year. So she went to a shopping centre and had filler put into the tip of her nose and on the end of the needle, went permanently and irreversibly blind in the shopping centre without a doctor present and the nurse injecting the person's nose wasn't even aware of the risk of blindness and clearly had no idea what to do when the patient in front of them suddenly said, I can't see. So as we talked about before there is no such thing as risk-free surgery and there's no such thing as risk-free non-surgical cosmetic injections make sure you do your homework make sure you know that the person's about to stick a needle into your face mm-hmm. actually knows her facial anatomy that she can show you and demonstrably demonstrate that she's been properly trained and that she knows how to treat complications if they were occur so if there's suddenly a risk of some of the tissue dying or changing color or losing its blood supply that she knows how to treat it. She knows who to contact. She knows what to do. And there's a whole series of specific recommendations which we formulated Mm -hmm. over the last 10, 15 years that we know may make a difference in tissue death, probably is not going to make a difference in blindness. And so therefore, knowing what areas to avoid is critically important. Training is critically important.
0: In, In my skill set, You know, with 18 years experience of injecting, I would not have any problems in injecting a nose. However, I choose not to in my practice. And if my patients do come in requesting filler in their nose, I suggest that they visit a plastic surgeon.
1: Yeah. And so, um, for example, in Korea, which has the highest incidence of injecting fillers into people's noses, what's sure. called a, a non-surgical rhinoplasty, you're yes. trying to make a bridge of their nose a bit stronger. Not surprisingly, highest incidence of fillers into people's noses, highest incidence in the world of blindness. Um we also said the other high risk area is in between your eyebrows sure. here, super, super high risk area. Sure. And most plastic surgeons now, if a patient presented saying, can you put filler into this particular area? We'd say, absolutely not. Botox fine. You can put Botox sure. into this area here with a super amount of safety. It's virtually impossible to make someone go blind by injecting Botox into mm-hmm. this area. It's incredibly easy to make someone go blind by putting filler in this area. So most of us just wouldn't do it again understanding the difference between those two different techniques comes back to training and experience. And as the patient who's potentially thinking about having some of these treatments done, it's really important you do your homework.
0: Mm. I feel like social media has been such a blessing in some ways in educating people, but also, you know, there's nothing differentiating, you know, someone like myself with, you know, 18 years experience as opposed to someone who has done a three-day course with a drug company and is now calling themselves a cosmetic injector. So how do we, how, how do we get better? How do we educate people?
1: We've got, we've got to come back to what we talked about, I think, with cosmetic surgery, and it's about transparency of training. So we want We want the government in surgery to say that you can't call yourself a surgeon unless you're surgically trained to a national benchmark that's exactly the same as cardiothoracic surgery and neurosurgery. And we want to make it really easy for someone who's on the internet researching their potential surgeon to be able to see that they are trained to the same level. We don't think it's good enough that they can come straight out of medical school and do a one or a two year course. That's not the same as being surgically trained. And in exactly the same way as um, cosmetic injectables, we've got to make it mandated. It's got to be law that you have to transparently show what level of training you've undertaken before you can inject someone. The, The other problem which is rife in major metropolitan Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and Adelaide is the concept of a particular GP or a particular medical practitioner sitting in a central office and having six or seven or eight injectors working in shopping centers I all around metropolitan I, I Sydney, that. Melbourne and Adelaide sure. injecting and referring back to that particular person via a zoom consultation and getting around the loophole in the law and that's what they're doing. I mean. For example, we know that your risk of blindness is significantly higher if you had previous scar tissue. So if you had previous skin cancer surgery or if you sure. had a previous trauma, we know the risk of you hitting an artery and therefore having a complication goes up exponentially.
0: Would that also be the case in um, rhinoplasty surgery? Correct. Yeah.
1: yeah. And but if you if you've got someone and you say, look, you need to have an in-person consultation with the person who's about to do your non-surgical injecting. Then they see the scar, they ask the question, they talk about it, talk about risks that we talked about before, and you might decide on based on that, that no, I'm not going to have the filler in this particular part of my body because of that risk. Now, if you're seeing someone on a 30 second at max Zoom consultation, and you're in a shopping centre and they're in Sydney, um, that consultation and that conversation about risk almost invariably never occurs. It means that there's a whole population of people who are going to unnecessarily put noses, lips and their eyesight at risk. It happens regularly. It happens far more often than what people are given credit for. And certainly I think the government at the moment is somewhat naively unaware of the magnitude of what this industry is. It is now common for young kids under the age of 30 to routinely have Botox, routinely have fillers. Five years ago, six years ago, that demographic was almost exclusively over 40. Sure. And so not surprisingly, the drug companies, the manufacturers of Botox and the other types of Mm. fillers have marketed to a young 20-year-old saying this is the go-to accessory you
0: must have. Definitely.
1: And so therefore... There is a business model, there's a commercialisation of a medical procedure and with that brings money and with that brings almost invariably cutting of corners and it's beholden upon the regulator to get a grip on this, to get a handle on this.
0: But don't you think that also really falls on the drug company? Of course. Because they really should be providing the adequate education.
1: Unfortunately from experience with drug companies and manufacturers of breast implants, Mm -hmm. so TCI, the example we've used before, were buying implants off Allergan at a significantly discounted price, far cheaper than any, they were selling far cheaper than they were selling to any plastic surgeon. So they, Allergan- Because of
0: the number that they were buying.
1: Correct. But they knew that the people who were putting these implants in weren't surgically qualified. And yet they were pricing the people who'd done the surgical training, they were pricing the plastic surgeons out of that market because they were charging them two or three or four times more per implant than they were charging Elegant. And as we talked about before, manufacturers of botulinum toxin, Botox and other things like that, again, are driven by the money. It is absolutely critically important that you, if you're a potential patient thinking about these procedures, you must do your research. It's really, really important.
0: We don't see that many younger people like we we certainly are not injecting um early 20s with Botox maybe that just shows I'm getting older Mm. (laughs) my patients are getting older but uh yeah we we definitely see you know the enhancement younger patients they're looking for enhancements they're looking for bigger lips and uh they often get sent away from my practice because that's not an aesthetic that i really like that much or find attractive uh so i'm very particular in terms of what the patients representing my brand look like also correct well the other thing
1: is they they walk out of your practice with a particular look that is representative and reflective of your aesthetics and what you believe is important and how you want people to appear and present Mm. you know so uh, the part of the problem we have, and and you, and you would notice this as well, is that there is a distortion in what people are perceiving to be attractive, or are perceiving to be uh, a desired outcome. Madonna most recently yes. appeared with a very what we would call overdone look, a lot of filler, looking a quite filler, looking really quite bizarre,
0: with a with you know clearly a facelift, and also
1: and and just not looking in any way natural. Now, that is a particular position that Madonna's taken, and I understand there are reasons why she does that. What I'm upset about is that that is presented to young 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old young kids as the look you should aspire to. This is the new uh, result that you should be aiming for, which is really quite unnatural and really quite artificial looking, and again, is not risk-free. And so like you, we find a lot of people presenting for an overdone upper and lower lip, which is completely disproportionate to the rest of their face, or looking for more filler into their cheekbones, even though they've had previous filler done somewhere else. And like you, we often send those patients away saying, look, this isn't reflective of what we believe is an aesthetic or a cosmetic outcome. But there are people who will perform those injections for them. And in so doing, are perpetuating that whole circle of fillers, more fillers, more fillers, and then the look becoming more and more and more divorced from what was a natural or the original outcome. The, the problem we know with fillers is they take up, they can take up to three to four years to dissolve. And if you're having oh, fillers.
0: I think it's maybe longer yeah. now. Oh, I mean, with... With, the, with some of the, it's fascinating, some of the work that Dr. Gavin Chan's been yeah. um, doing on fillers under MRI. I mean, some of his studies have confirmed 12 years.
1: So some of the original ones, you know, like the, the, the products were hanging around for ages, mm-hmm. and you're having filler done every year and it's not dissolving. And the problem is, is it just continually starts disordering the way you look. So again, a practitioner who is well-trained with a strong ethical and moral background to how they are practicing medicine, how they're practicing non-surgical injections, is going to educate the patient and say, look, we put this amount of filler in your face. I don't need to see you for three or four years. Mm. I don't need you to come back and see me next year and have more and more and more and more. And yet in these shopping centres, precincts, in these setups where the people, as you talked about, with minimal training, training after two or three or four weeks of training and then going back out, are often not having that conversation with people Mm. and are breeding a whole variety of our younger generation who look, frankly, weird.
0: I, yeah, I find that someone of a good reputation would not necessarily, and this is me making an assumption, would not necessarily want to work as an injector in a shopping center so you know the injectors are probably pretty inexperienced from what i've heard and seen the other thing that i find really alarming is that when patients present to me in a non-surgical setting they don't have any understanding of what they've had in their face previously they don't know what the brand name is Mm. they don't know what kind of filler it is Mm. like we really are you know very strict on giving the patient all of that information today you've had such and such Mm. you know dates lot numbers um treating it like a breast implant Mm. in saying that i've had breast augmentation and i didn't i don't know any of my information either but i think it's we are we are seeing you know, an increase in people that have been to many different places yep. over the years and had many different things done. And I say to my patients, if I ever get to move to America, which one day my mm. children will grow up and I'll be off,
1: yeah.
0: um, I would like the next person that you see to know what I have done to you. Yeah. So that's really important too.
1: Well, it's, it's also important because, as you and me were talking before, fillers come in different varieties and different age groups and... Um, and duration of of permanency. So some fillers are designed to last three, four, six months. Others are designed to last six, seven, eight, nine years. Some are designed to be permanent. If you have a complication and you have one of the newer fillers and you know exactly what it is, then you and me can relatively easily dissolve that filler, remove it, and we can start from scratch and get back to a a relatively blank canvas. The problem we have is that if you don't know what you're dealing with, then even if you get ultrasounds and MRI scans, they give you an indication about what the person's done, but they don't tell you the brand. And so it comes back to what we talked about before, a reputable ethical practitioner is going to make sure they put it in the right spot using the latest techniques with a properly certified legitimate product and are going to give you information about that product so that down the track, if you need to change practitioners or you need to have it reversed or you want to have something modified, the person you're seeing knows exactly what you've had done. All too frequently, what we see is people who've been somewhere and they don't know, as you said, what they've had done, where it's been put, how long it's going to last. And they have a complication like the filler has moved or it's gone to the wrong spot or mm-hmm. it's got a low-grade infection. And we're trying to play guesswork as to how we Fix that particular. They problem. don't.
0: They don't even know what brand of toxin they've had. Yeah. And you know, different toxins work differently in different people. Yeah. So yeah, that, I find that fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's an industry which, frankly, is is out of control, is not properly regulated, and people are being left to their own devices to find their way through what is a maelstrom of advertising, social media and money-making entrepreneurs who have turned this whole medical business into a cosmetic uh, entrepreneur sort of driven um, marketing model.
0: From speaking to colleagues in the UK, it seems that um, people that aren't even registered nurses can inject.
1: Yes. So, so there's been a push. So for example, I mean, Botox is a particularly useful drug in medicine per se. So, it's really useful in uh, if you grind your teeth, sure. we can make your muscles that close your jaw weaker, so you don't grind your teeth. If you suffer from urinary stress incontinence, we can make the muscles in your bladder weaker, so you don't have you're not incontinent. We can use it in people with cerebral palsy. So it's got lots and lots of different uses. The the problem we've got at the moment is there's been a dumbing down there's been a minimization of the risks associated with Botox in particular and people think well anyone can do it and what can possibly go wrong unfortunately things can and do go wrong and it's really important Mm. that you therefore make sure you're seeing someone who knows what to do if something which is not expected in fact does happen.
0: Mm. Talking about your passion which is breast surgery uh, and the experience that you have you know with your patients what is the difference now between something that was quite common a long time ago which was a breast reduction um, for a you know pendulous breast how has that technique changed
1: so it's changed predominantly because we have a much better understanding of the anatomy and of the blood supply and nerve supply to the breast so A lot of the techniques which were developed in the 1960s and 70s were developed because there was a relative lack of knowledge about how to keep the nipple alive, how to maintain the blood supply to the nipple, and more often than not, it ended up with a very big anchor-shaped scar. The problem I have with that particular scar is even though the long horizontal scar is in the fold underneath the breast, almost invariably at the central part in the cleavage area, that scar extends out and can be visible, particularly if you wear a bikini or if you're wearing a low cut top. So the advantage of the lollipop scar is that you can contain and minimize that extent of that medial, the cleavage part of the scar, and yet still attain and achieve a very cosmetic and very aesthetic looking breast. So the biggest thing that I've seen is that 100% of my breast reductions now are With the lollipop scar, even patients presenting with very large breasts or very pendulous breasts, almost invariably we can still do the lollipop scar. And going to that anchor shaped scar, we virtually never do. The other thing is that because we know what the blood supply to the nipple is, it means that we have a lot more confidence in performing simultaneously or at the same time a breast lifting procedure and a breast augmentation or inserting an implant into the breast as well. So someone presenting late thirties, early forties, after breastfeeding, pinched their family and they're thinking, okay, I really wouldn't mind taking my breasts back to the way they were before kids. Almost invariably involves lifting the breast and then also correcting the upper pole fullness in some way. And in the past, that operation was almost invariably staggered over two separate operations. You'd have the breast lift or the breast augmentation performed at one operation and come back at six months later and have the second one performed at a separate later stage most plastic surgeons now, because we know about the blood supply, we know how it works, um, would be very confident in putting the implant in Mm -hmm. and lifting the breast at the same time. And so those two changes have really occurred probably in the last 10 years in Mm -hmm. plastic surgery. It comes back to what we talked about before, and that is that if you're properly trained and you know how to handle tissue and you know about blood supply, which is what you're taught when you're becoming a surgeon, then you can use these latest techniques to help your patients and better, you can use these techniques to help your patients safely so you're not worried about nipple necrosis. You're not worried about wounds breaking down because you know how far you can push that that paradigm, how far you can push that operation, where you need to make your incisions and what you need to do to make sure you get the outcome the patient's wanting but you achieve it safely.
0: Mm. It's a really good point. Do you find uh, well this is a question because you know I've been practiced for so long, my patients are aging with me and a lot of my patients had breast augmentation done you know 10 to 15 years ago. you know the fashion has definitely changed mm-hmm. um, in that really high profile round breast. So they're coming in and saying to me quite often, I'm going to have breast revision surgery, which would also, I'm assuming, be a replacement of implant Mm -hmm. and are opting for that lift and a smaller implant. Are you seeing that trend come through?
1: Yeah, very much so. Mm. So that's a very common part of our practice. It can be driven either by social media Mm -hmm. or can be driven just because the patient has worked out that in their particular life at this particular time, what I was aspiring to 15 years ago is not what I want anymore. So I've got large breast implants and in fact it's impacting upon my capacity to play sport or it's impacting upon my capacity to buy clothes or Absolutely.
0: It might, the clothes thing is huge.
1: Or it, it might even be that they've actually got neck and back pain that mm. you normally would associate with people with Large breasts requiring a breast reduction, mm-hmm. and so they they do their research and they look and they say, okay, so there is advances and developments in breast implants. So the implants of fifteen years ago are not what we use now. Um, and they say, well, look, maybe what I might do is I might come and change my breast implants over, and I also might go to a smaller size, so it's much more in proportion to my body and what I'm hoping to achieve in terms of exercise and clothing and so forth and then recognising that well hang on I had very big breasts so if I'm making them smaller I don't want my breasts to be saggy so at the same time I'd like to have a breast lift at the same time so that combination of changing over implants going to a smaller size and having a breast lift is a very common part of our practice.
0: I think people are under the misconception that fat transfer is going to achieve the same result as an implant can you talk to me about that?
1: You're correct it doesn't. No. It won't and it never will. fat transfer we were hoping would be the the answer to everything unfortunately it's let us down when we try and get it to do something that it's just not designed to do so so fat transfer works really well when you're trying to camouflage or blur two tissue planes or a divot mm-hmm. or an implant or in breast reconstruction for example where we're making a new breast after breast cancer and a mastectomy mm. uh, we would use it 100 percent of the time because it allows us to smooth over it allows us to smudge the edges mm. of where our reconstruction from your tummy or an implant or something like that to your natural breast tissue but if we're trying to get it to fulfill an implant and get it to push out that upper pole of your breast to try and give you some volume in the upper pole. It takes a lot of injections and almost invariably doesn't give you what you're hoping for. Mm -hmm. So we would now use in breast augmentation, we talked about Mm -hmm. before. So we use it all the time in breast reconstruction. In breast augmentation, we would use it around the cleavage. So it's very helpful in augmenting your cleavage. So we will call that cleavage, cleavage lines or getting that look of fullness through here. but in trying to do it in getting a uh, a replacement, so take an implant out and try and refill that breast with fat, you're looking at maybe three, four, five, six operations wow. and you're still not going to get the result that you're hoping for.
0: And the fat won't retain there.
1: Correct. You yeah. only keep 50% of what you put in. So if I put 100 cc's of fat into your body, I'm only going to get to keep 50% or 50 cc's. So an average implant, 250, 300 cc's, transferring maybe 150, 100 at a time, keeping 50 to 75, straight away at four or five operations to get the result we're looking for. Mm. It's not the panacea that everyone thought it was gonna be.
0: Mm. I'm really fascinated to ask you about a patient's journey with reconstructive surgery, because I haven't had any experience in working in reconstructive plastic surgery. How does that take place? So when do you meet the patient? Where are they at?
1: So it's really important if we can to meet them very early in their journey, very Mm -hmm. early in their either diagnosis or when they've suddenly worked out that they have a carrying a gene for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So um, people might recall Angelique Jolie had a gene called BRCA, that stands for breast cancer, B-R-C-A, cancer gene, and it meant that she effectively had a 100% chance of developing breast cancer and ovarian cancer at some stage in her life. And so patients faced with that um, genetic information and they picked that up because their mum or their aunt or their dad had breast cancer at a very young age, that is under the age of 40, or had a, a... or had a strong history of ovarian cancer and they check the genes and they, you can be then told categorically, yes, you've got the gene or no, you don't. And those people, we would say, okay, well, we want you to go through and have kids and a family and things. And yeah. then at the age of 30, 35, 40, it's probably worthwhile prophylactically, electively removing your breasts and then saying, okay, how do we make new breasts for you? And that might that might mean using an implant, it might mean using tissue from your tummy, using your own tissue. Uh And those have advantages and disadvantages. They have risks and um, surgical skills required for different parts of those uh, techniques. So it's a conversation about what's your expectation of outcome, what do you want to achieve? And then what are the options that you have available to you? And then timing, when do we do that? And then how do we then get that worked out then with, a breast surgeon, so your your oncologist, your oncological breast surgeon, um, and then timing and family and all those sorts of things. The other time we see it is when someone comes in after having a breast lump, which is investigated, and suddenly get told they've got breast cancer, and then are then facing a situation, okay, well, what do I do? How do I suddenly get this all together? Do I have my mastectomy? And then follow that up with, an immediate breast reconstruction, or do I put a temporising device, like a tissue expander in, get through my chemotherapy and my radiotherapy and come back and do definitive reconstruction at a later stage.
0: What does the tissue expander do?
1: So what that allows us to do is it's, an, it's like an inflatable balloon mm-hmm. that we put in where the breast tissue was removed. So it goes in behind the breast skin and it has a port on it through which we can inject saline to make that balloon bigger or smaller. Sure. So one of the nice things we can do in breast cancer reconstruction is we remove the breast tissue, keeping the skin and the nipple, if we can, behind. And then we put an inflatable balloon into that surgical wound. Because it's not under t- under tension, because the balloon's deflated, it means the wound heals nice and safely and reliably because it's not under tension.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then at a period of four weeks or five weeks or six weeks later, we progressively expand that balloon up to the size which we need to match the other side, match the other breast. And once we know what that volume is, we can then swap either into your own tissue reconstruction or to an implant which matches that same size of that tissue expander. So it's, again, it's, um, it's just about trying to tailor the individual surgical procedure to the patient to make sure we get the outcome that they're wanting safely, reliably, and predictably, but also doing it in a way that the patient absolutely knows everything that's available to them. What we don't want to do is have a situation where the patient is just presented with one option and that's what they have, which may or may not be the right one for them. Mm -hmm. So it's about tailoring the surgical procedure to the patient who's sitting in front of you.
0: If this endorsement model gets through and a cosmetic surgeon or a doctor that's calling themselves a surgeon who isn't, isn't able to have that title anymore, they will still be able to do their procedures. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. Sure. And that's where I think there is an opportunity lost. So Mm -hmm. the 60 Minutes and Four Corners programs and the associated reporting by very brave people about what happened to them, to the Australian public, I think presented an opportunity for our regulator, for APRA, to really do something to protect the public and to make it transparently clear who has done the appropriate surgical training. As we said before, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery is still surgery. There's no such thing as risk-free surgery. And the risks of death, of infection, of blood loss, of things going remarkably wrong, are not diminished because you put the word cosmetic in front of it. It's still surgery. And I would say that, therefore, you need to be properly trained in surgery to the same standard as every other surgical procedure in Australia. It doesn't make sense that our regulator is accepting anything less than that. Now, Mark Butler, for his absolute credit, has said that he and the health ministers have agreed that you can't call yourself a surgeon unless you're trained as a surgeon to this Australian Medical Council standard. That is absolutely, spectacularly on the right path, exactly what we would all say makes absolute sense. What doesn't make sense is that the Australian Health Practitioner Agency, the regulator, Mm -hmm. is going to say, despite that, we're going to look at the information that's she's presented to us that we see and say, no, actually, we're going to endorse you. We're going to say that your training is appropriate to perform cosmetic surgery, even though they know you haven't met the standard that Mark Butler in November and December said was required to be a surgeon. So you as the patient are saying, I'm confused. I've just got the regulator saying to me that they endorse Dr. Smith to perform cosmetic surgery procedures even though they're not a surgeon. And the Minister of Health is saying, no, Dr. Smith can't call himself a surgeon because he hasn't been trained in surgery to the AMC standard. Surely it would make sense that you say the starting point for endorsement is you have to be a surgeon. And then you have to be trained in cosmetic surgery so that if you're a breast surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or a a urogynecologist, or an obstetrician and you suddenly want to do, I don't know, breast operations or tummy tucks, you both need to be a surgeon because you know how to manage complications and you have an ethical and moral code associated with being a surgeon, Mm -hmm. but you're also trained about how to do the surgical technique of tummy tucks and manage the complications. To us, that would make infinitely more sense and would allow the public... Who are trying to do the right thing, are trying to find out who their surgeon is and what training they have. They will be able to find out in a transparent, easy way that makes sense. This current proposal by APRA is misguided, makes it more confusing, and makes it almost impossible for people to work out who's done the training and, and who, who hasn't.
0: I want to ask you about something that is very popular and can have huge risk, and that is liposuction. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're, in effect, or the surgeons in effect, taking out litres of fat, mm-hmm. which is, in effect, fluid in the body, and then fluid can shift. Correct. And a person could quite easily die. Yes. Uh, and this is something that's sort of always really not been given. The seriousness of it isn't really been taken into account how do you feel about liposuction
1: look liposuction has its place sure and particularly when combined with fat transfer which Mm -hmm. is one of the things we talked about earlier um, is a very useful tool but it also has risk and it also requires a knowledge of what can go wrong and how to treat it so the two things that can absolutely go wrong as we talked about are fluid shifts leading to death or shock Mm -hmm. or infection. And you can end up with what they call necrotizing fasciitis or when massive full-on infection takes over the operative liposuction site and people end up with fevers, shock and can die. So it's not something which is simple, straightforward and easy. It's not as they advertise, walk in, have some liposuction and go back to work in the afternoon. But
0: this is actually what you know, has gone on in the past. Correct. I mean, I have heard stories, you know, of doctors, you know, removing seven litres of fat, um, leaving, you know, the premises and the nurse, you know, without an Iniquitous present or another, even staff member having to dress these patients in garments and send them home. In taxis? Yeah.
1: Or curled up in the back of a car? It
0: sounds like a really terrifying movie.
1: So again, at the moment, there's no regulatory requirement for any of these practitioners to have done any additional training. So the Victorian government here in Melbourne uh, recently developed a series of guidelines around liposuction, and they were developed in conjunction with anaesthetists, people from both sides of cosmetic surgery and plastic surgery in conjunction with uh, physiologists and Uh, cosmetic nurses and day surgery operators to work out what's the best way forward for people considering liposuction, what training should the people performing the liposuction have undertaken, both the surgeon and the nurse and the hospital looking after those patients. How should it be performed? What's the follow-up care? And they've been assembled into a document which is readily available on the website called Liposuction Guidelines. If you just type in Liposuction Guidelines, Victorian Government, you'll see it comes up but it goes to some things that you absolutely picked up on there. So the guidelines say that you shouldn't be liposuction any more than five litres of fluid at any one time. If you want to take more than five litres out, do it on two separate occasions of three litres each. You know, why risk it? It doesn't make any sense. Make sure that the person who is doing the liposuction hangs around in your town. They don't jump on a plane at five o'clock and go back to Sydney, which happened all the time make sure that the liposuction is performed in a licensed facility with sterile equipment that passes the regulatory standards.
0: Which is an operating room.
1: Which is an operating room or a facility which is clearly defined as having the same standards as an operating room. Now, all of these things can be legislated and mm-hmm. regulated. At the moment, they're not. And again, what that does is it puts the patient in a position where right from the get-go, they're a disadvantage. Most of these clinics, even though they look terrible out the back, and having done multiple inspections of these facilities, they're usually marble-lined at the front, and when you get out the back, you're going, oh, my God, what is going on here? Some of them, for example, can be renovated office blocks with no uh, associated sterile equipment, sterile walls, sterile air conditioning, all these things which are mandated by law if you want to have your tonsils removed. It's surgery. you're having liposuction, none of them apply. Well, that does again, again, doesn't make any sense. Doesn't. Surgery is surgery and liposuction has a real risk of things going wrong. And again, there should be appropriate regulatory standards for training, for where the operation is performed, who performs it, and what the follow-up care is. Mm-hmm. So for patients, if they're thinking about having liposuction, go to the Victorian government website or Safer Care Victoria, which is their body, and look for liposuction guidelines of the Victorian government. And we'll go through all of those things. There's a statement there for practitioners, what the government expects the practitioner to do, and then a version for the layman person, for the patient. So what questions you should be asking before you undergo liposuction.
0: As an industry, how can we we get better? Like how can we join together? And I mean plastic surgeons, you know, cosmetic physicians and registered nurses.
1: So I'd say the first thing that must occur is transparency of training. So a patient must be able to transparently see how much training an individual practitioner has done. There is no such thing as risk-free surgery. Things can and do go wrong. We see it all the time. So any surgical procedure, any cosmetic surgery must and can only be performed by someone who's done surgical training to the standard that is accepted for surgery in Australia in exactly the same way as neurosurgery or cardiac surgery. So any cosmetic surgical procedure must and can only be performed by a surgeon and that surgeon must be able to demonstrate transparently that they have training in the particular procedure they're about to perform. In non-surgical procedures, we need to make sure that the person's training and knowledge of anatomy is to a set and predetermined benchmark, which again is nationally enforced. We know what that standard should be, let's enforce it. Let's make it mandatory. I don't understand why it's not. And finally, we need to ensure that those procedures, whether it's cosmetic surgical procedures or non-surgical injections, are only performed in the highest standard of facility. It's got to be registered. It's got to be licensed. It's got to be sterile. It's got to be clean. It's got to conform to a whole variety of different standards which are appropriate to what that surgical procedure is. So if you're doing liposuction or non-surgical injections, there needs to be a set guideline as to what standards need to occur.
0: Absolutely. And if
1: you're doing cosmetic surgery, the standard has to be equivalent Mm. to a hospital operating room. That's what the public want. That would be the bare minimum that I think they're looking for. And yet presented with an opportunity to really do something powerful, our national regulator, for reasons which I simply don't understand, is rewarding the guys who don't want to do the hard yards and don't want to do the full surgical training. Mm. It just does not make any logical sense.
0: So you really came forward and you're really standing up for patient safety. Within the industry, and you went on sixty minutes. Was there any backlash from from what you said?
1: Yeah, um, these are these were these are big players. Um, they're seriously lawyered up, and they have a ruthless businessman like approach to how they approach what for them is a multi million dollar industry that's earning them a lot of money. So me coming along and as part of a team of very courageous patients and nursing staff Mm. who at great personal risk to themselves came out and put their hand up and said, this is wrong, um, highlighted and put a a spotlight on what was ubiquitous systematic uh, manipulation of a loophole. And that meant that what happened to us was a mixture of both patients ringing the following day saying, I need help. So we had wow. like over 150 people in the first two hours on Monday morning after that went, through, went, after that went to air saying, I need help, I need help. So again, underpinning that this is a much bigger problem than what people, even the regulators understand it to be. But then I had a whole variety of very sinister and nasty things happen. Mm. So one of them was that I was reported for operating in my consulting rooms in much the same way that Daniel Lanz was shown to be operating in his clinic. And, of course, I'm part of uh, the Epworth Freemasons Hospital. So at this hospital, we have 12 operating theatres. We perform everything from complex orthopaedic, vascular, General surgery, we have an intensive care unit down the room, but all the surgery is performed within an operating theatre. And so the regulator turned up to our practices to do a raid and said, Well, where's Mark operating? And they said, Well, he's upstairs. And they assumed that upstairs meant there was a little room I was going upstairs. And so they go upstairs and they come back about 10 minutes later and say, but that's an operating theatre. I said, yeah, that's where we operate, in an operating theatre with an anaesthetist in, because that's what we do. But the fact that someone would deliberately forge a complaint or an allegation to the regulator um, was perhaps something that I should have anticipated. To be honest, I didn't think people would be that low. Mm, they will the, be. the other thing we have is we've had now is three... Patients who are fake patients sure turn up, um, and within probably fifteen seconds of the consultation starting, uh, start undressing and taking clothes off. Now, in our practice, we have chaperones, particularly if I used to work as uh, the women's hospital, a gynaecological cancer and genital manipulation. Uh, surgery fix up so we still see people who have lots of gynecological problems and so we have a chaperone for each and every patient we have a separate room which is locked and people are protected and their privacy is insured and so when these people started undressing it became abundantly clear what was happening on you know what was happening that this was clearly a setup but again it it
0: do you think they were? Uh, do, they, do you think they had camera, cameras on, or were recording? It? Almost certainly had yeah, cameras
1: sure. and were writing meticulous notes. Sure. And, and certainly on one occasion, the patient, I said to the patient, "Look, I'm really sorry, I can't help you." She presented saying she had been burnt having a Brazilian waxing, and and said, "Look, I need your help." To which I said, "Well, there's no burn and everything looks fine." And I don't think you need to have anything further done. Leave everything alone. 24 hours later, apra ring, say oh, there's been a complaint put in. Um, again, relatively easy to discuss and explain and talk about what's going on, the fact there was a female nurse there at all times, the fact that we didn't,
0: you know, um
1: take photography or anything it's like you know, all these obvious but al- things.
0: Also, you still had to go through those processes Correct. to deny those claims.
1: Correct. Yes. So that it's not that standing up in this industry is without consequence. Mm. Um, The nursing staff that stood up, the uh, patients who stood up, multiple people in this industry who've stood up before have had legal letters, have had threats of defamation, have been dragged through courts and so forth. And so it's, I think, underpins the courage of those nurses and those patients who stood up but also should flag to the regulator that there is a serious commercialization. There's a serious business model behind this whole industry. And these people are ruthless. And they will stop at nothing to continue to develop this business model, which they think is going to make them a lot of money. And as we talked about before, that's exactly where we are right now. The commercialization of cosmetic surgical procedures Mm -hmm. and and non-surgical cosmetic injections is unparalleled in its growth over the last 24, 36 months.
0: How can nurses protect themselves? Get trained. Mm -hmm.
1: Make sure you have a a colleague, an ally, a buddy who you can talk with and chat to constantly so that when that difficult patient turns up, when that patient who is asking for things that you know is not in their best interests or which you know is frankly dangerous, you have a colleague or a friend who can assist and help you and tell that patient, look, I'm really sorry, I'm not performing that procedure for you because it's dangerous, it's risky, or it's not gonna give you the outcome that you're looking for.
0: That's why uh, a a group of colleagues and I, we became board members of the Cosmetic Nurses Association, was to try and raise the level of standard and educate nurses on those standards and what should be expected and, um, you know, it's a lot of work mm. to get people on board.
1: And and also, as you correctly point out, um, when it all goes wrong, you don't want to be there by yourself. No. You, you, you need a friend on the end of the telephone who actually Absolutely. knows what they're doing or can help you in getting help. So you need a, a, a teamwork, you need a collective group, of other nurses, or preferably nurses and a senior doctor, Mm -hmm. experienced injector, who knows how to treat arterial injections of filler, knows how to treat the Botox that's gone wrong, knows how to manage the patient with the unrealistic expectation who keeps on demanding you do more and more and more filler, and you're saying, no, 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 you already had way too much, we need to stop. Those are not easy um, conversations and if you have a complication it is a very very difficult time and you need people around you who both are your friends who are going to support you and know what to do mm.
0: thank you so much for your time today i've My really pleasure. enjoyed our chat professor mark ashton
1: um, thank you very much it was an absolute pleasure to be part of your podcast